0: but technology isn't, isn't neutral, it's always shaped and designed um, and, and fashioned uh, by, by, by people.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Steven Parton and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, our guest is author and podcaster Azeem Azar, who has a robust background as an investor, a founder, and a regulator in the tech space, which includes several years working with the World Economic Forum on the Global Future Council on digital economy and society. Azeem spends much of his time these days creating content for his blog, Exponential View, where he provides weekly assessments of the dynamics that are at play in humanity's exponential transformation. The key ideas he's uncovered on this journey can be found in his latest book, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. In this episode, we review his book and the wisdom that he's gained over the years, with a particular emphasis on the impacts of the growing divide that is taking place between technology's advancements and society's ability to keep up with those advancements. And with that being said, let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Azeem Azar. So about a year ago, uh, you released the exponential age, how accelerating technology is transforming business politics and society. So that seems like a pretty natural place to start. So I'd love if you could just kind of tell us a bit about the motivation for that book.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. It's great to uh, to be on the on the show, um, uh, and with an audience that sort of understands accelerating technology. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to guess. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think the the real motivation was that um, as uh, I started to spend time having exited my, my last startup about seven years ago, uh, there was definitely a sort of a distinct shift in the the nature of the technologies that. Uh, we were we were seeing so on the one hand um, we were in the midst of this uh the start of the AI boom that had kicked off about 2011 2012 with these various breakthroughs in, in deep neural networks um, but you were also starting to see uh, within uh clean tech that things like solar power and battery technology was getting cheaper and cheaper and, and cheaper um, and you know the heart of any you know what makes a tech a technology exponential when we we talk about it is as an economist is actually this idea that it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so when you draw that graph that sort of the exponential curve what's in fundamentally embedded in that is that um, you're getting more power for the same price right your price performance is going up um, and that's essentially what's happened in in semiconductors you know when you when you bought a transistor which is like the fundamental unit of a, of a traditional computer chip uh, in 1958 1960 it would cost like 120 dollars hundred sorry um 120 dollars then twelve hundred dollars in 2020 terms um uh, transistors today cost fractions of a hundredth of a millionth of a dollar, it's so cheap, it's actually really hard to say. So exponential technologies um, are not actually just about power increasing, it's about price performance improving dramatically. Uh, and, and I started to, to see that in a few areas, um, computing uh, as sort of demonstrated through AI, uh, clean energy, uh, and then also within the biological, domain um and in in additive manufacturing that we were starting to see a whole host of um these exponentials taking place and 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 that i think i wanted to make some sense of but like, why was it happening um and then critically uh what does it actually what does it actually mean uh, and i mentioned that i was sort of an economist by by training and you know economists um Uh, often think in terms of institutions, and I certainly do for a bunch of family reasons that I sort of touch on in the book, Um, uh, and I started to think that a lot of the issues that we were facing um, in that period, 2016, 2017 onwards, uh, seemed to relate to the institutions um, in which we sort of surround ourselves, like uh, defamation laws or monopoly laws, were struggling to contend with the questions that were being asked by these technologies. Uh, And so that's why I wanted to put out a book that combined both my explanation for why we were actually in the exponential age, it's a a big claim to make about anything, and then start to say, well, what does this actually mean? And how does that help us explain uh, the level of sort of friction and the possibility for transformation uh, that these technologies will will deliver so that was kind of that was the in a sense the 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 motivation
1: yeah and that friction you talk about there would it be fair to say that that's the exponential gap that you talk about in the book that distance between the advancing technology and society's capacity to keep up with it
0: yeah that's that is the friction right so the friction is is essentially that um The technology advances, constructs new ways of behavior, new types of behavior, uh, new ways of manifesting itself. Um, But the institutions that we use to guide our everyday lives are based on on other uh, assumptions, and that I call the exponential gap. The institutions are linear. Uh, Podcast listeners can't see this, but I'm holding my hand up like a straight line at sort of twenty degrees to the horizon. Uh, The technology is exponential, and I'm now making a terrible exponential curve with my hand. Uh, and that's the exponential gap. And it was just a way of analyzing um, and, and making sense of the, the fact that we seem to have all these issues around what's going to be the future of work? What's going to be the future of com- competitive markets? you know, What's going to be the future of trade? What's going to be the future of political discourse? And, you know, I've been around for a while, I just turned 50. And, and I don't remember a time where so many things were up in the air. I mean, there were things that were existential that were up in the air, like we were worried about global nuclear war when I was 10 years old. And that's existential, but it's only one thing. Whereas Mm. today, we were like, well, there's all these things. And it all seemed to point back to somehow Moore's law, or or something similar. And I was trying to make make sense of all of that.
1: So as you wade into that chaos, what kind of mindset do you go into it with? How do you kind of separate yourself from the stress or the vertigo of such a disorienting environment and kind of ground yourself in a way that allows you to see clearly to start understanding what's actually mm. taking place? You know, I th- I think that um, I'm
0: really lucky just as my at my moment in time, uh, because I got a computer when I was nine years old. Mm. And um, I got my second computer when I was Twelve and my third when I was fourteen, and uh, you know we had my mum had a computer. In fact, she was she was the first person in the family to have one, um, and in that I saw its capabilities improve constantly, mm-hmm. uh, and and I was exposed to the idea of Moore's law um, probably by the time I was twelve or thirteen, uh, and. Uh, you know, so, so in a sense, that idea that the computers were going to get faster and cheaper and performance was going to improve was really, really embedded, um, uh, you know, in, in me, even if I couldn't make it explicit. And actually kind of funnily enough, when I did my university finals in one of my economics papers, I had a complete mind bank. This is in 1994 um, on, on everything I'd ever studied. And there was one question, I forget what it was. Um, and I thought I could just about squeeze talking about Intel and the eight hundred two eight six chip and the eight hundred three eight six chip and the eight hundred four eight six chip because those that was the latest chip at the time, and uh, you know, I, and I did, and 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 I kind of made it up, and actually the examiners loved it, and I did quite well in that paper. So, so I think that that part of the advantage that that you know I and other people, you know, who've grown up in that period um, when computing wasn't hidden by black gorilla glass which it now is um is that we you know we tinkered and we learned and we understood these processes and and being that close to it I think gives you a sense uh, of what's going on when I then get into my career and I'm kind of constantly working on the internet I've embedded this idea that stuff will get faster and cheaper and Mm -hmm. if it's a bit shonky right now like I used to listen to um uh sort of Seattle and Portland, um, electronica radio stations streamed over the internet, like 16 kilobits in 1995, um, you knew it was going to get better and Mm -hmm. the quality would get better um, and and better. And and so that I think sets you up to understanding this and you understand Moore's law and you, you track, I tracked Yahoo's user growth. Between ninety four and 97, 98 for my job, and it looked like a hockey stick. Um, and, and then you know, Ray Kurzweil comes out with a couple of his books and his his essay, which I think has really stood the test of time, uh, the Law of Accelerating Returns, which he came out with in two thousand and one, where he explains this. And I think at that point, it's really, really kind of embedded um, in me. And, and th- so that's a long winded way of saying that you know, I started with this right deeply lived experience around this trend. I learned a little bit about Moore's Law, Um, you know, Byte Magazine, B-Y-T-E, which is no longer published, but I recommend listeners go off and look at archives on the internet as absolutely phenomenal from the eighties and early nineties on on this, because it was was discussed all the time. And I only really started to understand um, that it was a sort of separate thing that you could think about in terms of planning by, you know, the mid to late nineties. And then of course the Kurzweil um, essay and and then starting to, you know, realize that when I would do business modeling, I was often mm. the biz- the models that you that I built were non-linear, right? Because you you knew they were non-linear, right? That's how that's how these systems grow, um, and uh, and 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 so it was embedded in me uh, for for a while. What took a long time was to try to unpick why this is this is actually happening, and uh, you know, I don't think Ray uh, explains it in that essay, the, you know, the, the sort of, the, the, work that I did around why does this exponentiality actually happen, um, you know, was, was, I spent a long, a long time thinking about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, what could you maybe offer up, a, a an answer to that in the, in this sense, why is it <laughs> happening? Like, I know that's a big question, but can you, can you kind of hit some of the key points?
0: So I, I, I love the why because um, the why for me is amazingly human uh, in in all of this, right? So um, just as a simple example, uh, lockdowns happened, people Mm. are bored at home, we've all watched the end of Netflix and we've read to the end of Reddit. So what do we do? We make sourdough um, (laughs) and the first sourdough we make is, it takes ages, tastes like crap. I hope I can say crap in the podcast. There's mess all over the kitchen. You've wasted half of it and no one eats it. And the second loaf, there's less waste. You do you do a bit better. By the eighth loaf, it's kind of, there's not a crumb of flour wasted. It's the kitchen is immaculate and it tastes delicious. And we learnt by doing. Mm. Uh, and, and so what we, what we discover is that in kind of complex, engineered, multi-step product processes, um, there are, lots of things that you end up being able to improve and that that gives rise to a learning rate a rate at which you learn how to do this do this better and what determines um your learning rate is uh what your mum used to tell you practice makes perfect uh it, it's doing more of it uh, and so this relationship of the learning curve uh, was identified, sort of formalised, well, by mothers for thousands of years, but by Theodore Wright, uh, uh, who was an uh, aeronautical engineer and attached to the US military. And in the mid-30s, he realised that um, there was this kind of learning curve that every for every doubling of cumulative production of an airframe, it was 15% unit cost cheaper because the engineers figured out um, how to do things better. Uh, and so... So that that learning um, is is really the relationship that actually underpins Moore's law. Mm. Um, you know, Moore's law is actually not a sort of um, it's a sort of social construct that the semiconductor industry has agreed to, to to agree uh, stick to adhere to as best they can. But Wright's law, which is about learning rates, tells us about kind of got these complex products. So then the question is, well, what when you've got a learning rate, um, what sorts of things might accelerate it and mm that there, there are a number of things that would would accelerate it so one is if you can expand the market faster right because it, it, the learning is a function of cumulative demand not of time so if demand doubles every 10 years learning will be much slower than if demand doubles every 10 minutes right uh, and so so things that you can do to um extend and expand um demand help a lot and so the uh a, 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 increasing architectural choices that were made around technology to make it more modular so that things were not these big meaty stacks like the first mainframes but were kind of componentized meant that these components are um, simpler optimizations are more um, kind of apparent as to where they need to be and a modular component like a silicon chip that can work in everything from um, uh, the, the computer of a farm, through to the, the RAM and a camera, um, expands the market. So your demand can increase really, really rapidly. And um, the, the, the availability of, of those types of technical combinations means that new use cases uh, emerge, which drive sort of novel um, knowledge foraging and discovery that might help people to better improve the uh the, the the product and then having networks um of information and trade and and the finance that supports them gives you global access to markets which increases demand but it also speeds up the rate rates of learning so what you you end up with is you know this kind of amazing uh bit of classical economics in uh, at, at work in in semiconductors where um the lasers are built by the people who very, very build the very, very best lasers. It's ASML in the Netherlands, but they're operated by the guys who absolutely operate those lasers better than anyone else, which is TSMC in Taiwan, and um, and you, you're able to 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 do that. So what happens is that the kind of clock speed takes off, but it's not just about the somehow the inherence of the technology. It, yes, the engineers are doing the hard work at the front end, but a global market. Um, this kind of architectural modularity, um, all of these things are, are are helping by driving the demand um, and then with that accelerating the, the sort of the time-based aspect of the learning.
1: Yeah. And do you think things are only going to continue to streamline in that sense? Um, because I think of specifically, I think the EU just passed a law or is trying to pass a law in order to standardize chargers or ports or something on phones i can't remember i just recently saw a thing about it but this is one of those things where you have like proprietary technologies between different companies that are making things less efficient it's more difficult to do this innovation and to keep things efficient and it feels like maybe the government and yeah. the market are kind of stepping in and saying hey let's honor rights law, let's honor this efficiency thing. And then there's just this market pressure to streamline and make things more efficient. So there's less hurdles in the way.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, It's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the, the power charging thing is, um, uh, was, is is sort of fascinating because I think it, it, it also reflects um, uh, uh, you know, it reflects something about the power that emerges, like the political power that emerges mm-hmm. in these markets. Um, it, I think Apple was in a, just in a really weird place because actually the USB standard was running away from from them anyway, and it was getting better than the the, the Lightning standard in the iPhones. Um, so it's not clear to me that they that they frankly lose very much from it. If not, they don't they don't even gain. And I think of all the hills Apple could die on. Uh, the lightning format, uh, is is not pl- plug format, you know, is not, isn't, is not the one for them to really take their last, their last stand. I think there is a question about whether, um, uh, whether this sort of fragmentation of the global economy and agreements might reduce the size of demand and might slow down learning. Um, so I think that that is not going to happen. Um, I don't really talk about it in the book. Um, you know, but, um, the reason I don't think it's going to happen is because there are new ways for us to, to learn. Um, and some of those new ways to learn are coming through the, the technologies we've developed, right? So AI and virtual twinning um, constructs new ways, new ways to learn. So what's virtual twins is, is you basically simulate uh, products that you want uh, and you, you do the learning by building like a million digital replicas and see how they perform in your virtual environment, and so actually you 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 can speed up that optimization process to get to a better product. And I give an example actually in the book of, of that with with a yacht, uh, a, a yacht sort of hydrofoil. Um, this, the other thing is that you know AI is turning out to be a real uh, accelerator because if you think about um, you know what is that process of of, of learning that we're going through, it's um, it's about having these products, putting them into the into actual use, seeing how they get used, figuring out from experience um, what paths you could take uh, that would be more, more efficient. Now, the thing that you can do within within sort of machine learning or sort of high performance computing is that you can explore many of those paths um, almost in a sense uh, virtually without building building that. And I think one of the things that we've seen within AI is that the rate of acceleration, at least measured by complexity of AI models, is much much faster than the uh, the Moore's law chart mm. curve we've seen in the last sixty years. Um, and and I think what you're going to be able to see is you're going to be able to use AI to um, enhance the rate with which learning can. Um, can occur uh and and you know it's early days now to see whether it really will have that impact but there's a kind of there's a sense in it for, for me that it it might be able to to do that i think the second thing is just that these markets are now getting they're getting really really big and even in a fragmenting economy these fragmented markets might be large. I mean just think about what's happening with solar panels. And even beyond that, even in a kind of fragmented economy, trade will continue to take place. And that trade will take place at, at not in the in the sort of unalloyed, um, uh, unconstrained way that, that was imagined um, from, from the 1980s onwards, but it will still take place and there will still be massive global markets for for underlyings. Um, that, that go into the technology even if like sort of sharp ends and certain areas um, you know can only address certain countries because of sanctions or, or restrictions so I, I don't think the um, I don't think from the kind of uh, geoeconomics of this that um, the the learning rates will will slow down. I think that Ray Kurzweil's argument in the 2001 essay which is that, this idea of um layered s curves um that actually make the exponential um is is a is a quite a compelling one and i actually didn't find any better um explanation uh than 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 that and the idea simply there is that you know when you actually break down an exponential curve what it is it's um there's a there's a particular Product enhancement in manufacturing that comes along, um, it's got the shape of an S curve. It's a bit rubbish at first. It then gets really, really useful, and then you flog it to death, and it doesn't deliver anything. But by the time you get there, you found another optimization that's a different S curve that allows you to to get up there. And and you know he, he he talks about it as a kind of empirical set of observations, and and you know we can argue about whether that's a sort of robust enough theory. But I didn't find a better explanation uh, than than that. So I you know I. I thought that's a useful one to use.
1: Yeah. And you touched on, you know, the politics there, which I think is really important. And one of the things that you've talked about in the book, uh, that the this growing gap affects is something like political polarization. Can you maybe talk a bit about some of these specifics like how this growing divide is affecting our political landscape?
0: Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, there are two there are two ways. So I'm going to be like a choose your own adventure, like an old school adventure. I'm going to give Love you it. two choices, uh, and uh, uh, Stephen, and then you can decide uh, which direction you want to go, right? So one is the direction of, um, uh, you know, how how changes in general might, um, you know, can start to construct a uh, uh, division. And the second would be, how do the platforms built on top of these technologies um, manifest themselves in ways that may be, may be divisive? So so that, there's your choice. Like, do you want to go left to the dark wood uh, or right into the cave uh, with only a sliver of light um, and Ooh. the rumble of an angry
1: monster? I, have to, I want to go for the angry monster, I think. I don't know which of those two was the angry monster. Okay, so you you tell me, you tell me. Yeah, go. let's let's talk about the the the, the companies and the structure because I think that might and in, in actually uh, include some of the human nature and the inevitable change aspects to it as well. So let's let's lean towards the latter.
0: Yeah, of course. So one of the things that these this sort of exponential uh, shift has has done is it's put computing everywhere, and mm-hmm. so we all have a uh, a digital persona that lives on social networks that we access you know 15 16 hours a day um, and and on the other hand you've got computing that can actually manage uh, manage all of that uh, for us um, and so we find ourselves um, mediated by a, a a a platform and as every product developer knows you end up making choices uh, and so in you know in the book um, I talk about how uh, the the rapidity with which uh, discourse appeared online and started to then become the the dominant place where conversations about the world happened and where people learnt about the world um, went uh, was was pretty was extremely fast uh, to think that you know fifteen years ago not a single one of us discussed politics on on Facebook, not even Mark Zuckerberg, right? Nobody did because it, well, maybe not fifteen years ago, seventeen years ago, right? It's a, it's a blink of an eye, and, and so, so there are ultimately um, we're then mediated in someone else's platform, uh, and the platform owner has their own um, uh, ultimately kind of commercial agenda about the choices that they they do and don't make, and those choices are not transparent. And and what they've done, what's happened in a really short period of time is that um they have constructed a new a sort of common uh common space, but it it which we all think of as being a common space, but actually it's owned and controlled by, by them. Uh, and and so we've seen over the years Facebook and, and Twitter and so on change the way that um, they handle, um, you know, bad behavior. They've changed the way in, the kind of information they show to us. Uh, Facebook used to just show a raw feed of reverse chronological information. And then um, that became too spammy and they started to rank it algorithmically. But we didn't know what they were ranking for. Of course, it's turned out and come out more explicitly since I wrote the book that a lot of the ranking they did was designed to um, get people to, engage and the best way to do that was to make them outraged so there was there was that dynamic but there's also another dynamic which is the the um fact that our our private space um things that we think of as private were starting to be, seem private but be, but avail itself to these pu- these public these these corporations right and so they were the ones who were starting to mediate and see and access the relationships that we uh, we have. Um, and it's really, really powerful. You know, My previous company startup was a, uh, was called Peer Index. And we um, initially, what we wanted to do was build a kind of common layer um, across all social networks so you could manage your identity across, across all of them. And when we would do our experiments and we would look at the academic research, it's, you know, when you can put the entire graph of relationships of people into uh, a modern data structure, the inferences you can make can be incredibly strong. So one really simple and trivial example is just uh, this idea of homophily. Um, People hang out with people who are like them and who are interested in the things they, they, they do. They they're all interested in. It's really hard if all of your friends support, I'm in the UK, so I mean, as a soccer example, support Arsenal and you support Chelsea. Um, you know, life on a Saturday afternoon with your mates isn't that fun. Um, and so we naturally move towards a kind of realm of hom- homophily because it's quite, it's quite easy. And cognitively and emotionally, it's really difficult to spend a lot of time doing things that you're not interested in and mm-hmm. you don't like right? I mean, you know, if you don't like um, young adult detective fiction, right, go off and read 60 of those books in a row and nothing else, and then tell me how you feel after that, right? Not great. <laughs> uh, not great. So, so, you know, homophily is, is, again, another sort of human human trait that is incredibly, so it seems to be sort of deeply embedded in us psychologically, and it, it's a sociological function that was is so much easier to do that sorting hat is much easier to do on a in a digital Facebook platform than it is in the real world. Now it does happen in the real world, right? Through mechanisms of um, uh, you know uh, sort of where do people of different races and socioeconomic backgrounds kind of end up living in cities, and and how does that get triggered? And you know even before you have um, uh, sorts of explicit racist policies this filtering starts to to happen so we do it anyway but it's just that it's it's done um at a much much faster and less explicit rate yeah. uh, on these platforms so that so i think that that would have contributed to um some degree of political polarization i, I say contributed because we we need to see what the data actually says and we need to see what is anecdotal um versus what is actually statistical <laughs> and we need to see um what is uh was was what emerged versus what was really done actively so for yeah. example i think we know and facebook admits that when you look at the rohingyas um and the way in which the myanmar authorities uh kind of constructed. Um, Sort of, uh, sort of hate towards them, or you look at various instances of racial hate or that spread in India through WhatsApp, you can see that connection. I think you can see that, um, you know, the whole January the 6th thing, you know, relied quite a lot on these sort of digital networks and their ability to sort of con- connect people. Um, so, so it sort of, it looks pretty unhealthy. There's there's a mix of evidence that shows its degrees of unhealthiness that may be systemic, maybe not. But it is driven by uh, fundamentally, this issue that the technology got really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what kind of um, capabilities we know we need internally um, to manage it as individuals. And we didn't know what we needed sort of from an institutional level that that was kind of, uh, you know, regulatory.
1: Yeah, it feels like what you're saying here is that in a lot of ways, as the exponential curve took off, it carried with it the the extreme aspects of human behavior and amplified those in just a very powerful way. So while we think that a lot of this is, you could argue that technology is actually getting in there and making things worse. It's really just allowing the human condition to be expressed well but that but that may be making things worse yeah totally totally that
0: literally might be the way in which the thing gets worse and it um you know i think one of the things that was helpful is that it made explicit uh these types of um uh these types of uh, of, of relationships and assumptions so what one of the technologies that unfortunately i had to uh didn't talk about because i cut the chapter for reasons of length uh from the book was some work that was done in um, some of these early language models, um, the, the, the things that were sort of predating mm. the transformer models like BERT and then GPT, um, where, which were called word vectors. And they what you were able to do starting in about 2015, 2014, 2015, because of the computation being cheap enough, was look at the kind of whole of human corpuses of text, English, natural language, English text, and look at the relationships that were established within them. And in those relationships, you could kind of go off and say, You know, man is to woman as, and it would say doctor is to nurse, as um, strong is to uh, decorous. You know, it would construct these relationships and make them explicit, these sort of kind of fundamental biases. You know, um, uh, the the, the great example is, you know, if you asked an AI system, um, you know, picture a president an american president it's only ever going to picture essentially a white guy yeah. um because it, it be, even though the constitution doesn't say that um and so so w- w- what these techniques technologies did was they actually rendered explicit a lot of things that were were implicit so that's definitely something that that, that happened but the thing there's another thing that happened on with re- you know the regulate recommendation algorithms on on places like youtube and and uh, Facebook, which I think is different to this idea that it just showed the human condition um, up. And, you know, Zeynep Tukfexi, who's a, a sociologist um, uh, attached to one of the, the sort of storied Ivy League universities, talks about this quite well. It's sort of the extremification of um, of content that you see that, that that drags people into you know the flat earthing mm-hmm. movement and, and I had a really good example of that when um, I had some back issues uh, early on in writing the book and I went on YouTube to look for some yoga for backs and um, you know by the uh, I couldn't settle for the first one I was given and I was like I, I am I am not going to do this yoga until i find the perfect yoga i mean it was the most un-yogic thing to do but of course as you might imagine not only did I, i i sailed straight past yoga straight into like extreme back strengthening um and and so so actually that's not unveiling the human condition what that's doing is it's actually kind of conditioning me in a in a really really negative way um out to the out to the extremes um and you know, again, uh, a lot of people have talked about and have identified this, and there's um, there have been whistleblowers from these firms to say, yeah, that's what we we knew this thing was was actually doing, um, and so so I think that we, we can't we, there is there was explicit design in these systems, and there was explicit awareness of what the risks um, would be, but it was too much hassle to have the conversation yeah. with civil society early on and and that's what happened i think
1: so rather than just revealing our demons so that we could work on them it fed our demons so that they became stronger in a sense does that make sense i
0: I don't think anyone is born a flat earther
1: Right. right i don't think anyone
0: believes that anyone is born believing that covid is zapped in via 5g um, and and nanobots that that Bill Gates controls. I mean, this stuff is completely insane. Right. Um, you know, I don't think uh, you know. And even I, I, we know, you know, we know about media manipulation and narrative manipulation, um, and the ability to get people to sort of believe sort of absurd or extreme things. It's been the uh, uh, you, you know, it's been it's been the, the 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 sort of key strength of many a uh, 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 totalitarian. Um, for 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 a really really long period of time but it's just that it can be done at this big big scale and i think what was a bit unseemly in the process was the the extent to which the denials came from the platforms that this was Mm. actually happening that they and and the the notion that you you could have a little fix um on you know that could just be bolted on the side, like um, community health, and, and you know you, you'd see it because uh, over the years since they've had an advertising platform for several years, I used to advertise on Facebook, and um, if you put something in and it passed their automated test, human review would come in and tell you that that was unacceptable within seconds because Procter and Gamble and uh, the Toyota account were too important, right, mm-hmm. to, to to spoil and it was never done on the, the the kind of content it itself or on the design not even the content forget that on the design of the systems by which we put content out um and and i think that's where i slightly disagree with someone brilliant like eric schmidt who's who was the chairman of, of google for many years who says technology is is fundamentally neutral um you know i don't think it's it's fundamentally neutral there are certain patterns in technology the learning pattern that we talked at the beginning that that is happening sort of almost independently um but technology isn't isn't neutral it's always shaped and designed um and and fashioned uh by 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 people
1: so that brings us i feel like to the inevitable question of of policies and regulation how do you approach this very challenging topic of Kind of controlling and I guess you know reigning in this this beast that seems to be running amok.
0: Well, I, you know, I went through a a journey um, in researching and writing the book, starting from a point thinking that uh it, that it's sort of on the technologists a little bit, um, and the fact that they're they're not necessarily you know uniformly um. Charming characters uh, uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't help. And some are certainly more charming than others. I think uh, Sundar Pichai and uh, Satya Nadella, um, you know, Tim Cook. These are characters with a certain amount of of, of charm. Um, uh, but as I went through the the work, I started to to think that um, that it's it's actually. As much about the, that lower linear line, asking the right questions and engaging um, appropriately, and starting to understand, um, you know, what's deliberate, what's accident, what's design, what emerges from the nature of the technologies uh, them, themselves. You know, one got one good example about of this is um, this notion of planned obsolescence mm. that goes around that 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 companies deliberately. Um, build their products for sort of end of lifeing um, so that you buy an upgrade uh, and yeah you know, there are two things about that you know number one um you know especially with products with lithium ion batteries they only have a certain amount of charge cycles um, in them and that's the chemistry of it and below the chemistry is the, the mother of all sciences is the physics of it um and and so that that's just an absurdity um uh and and the second is You know, as a kid who still has, I'm going to hold up my first computer, the ZX eighty one Spectrum, ZX eighty one from Sinclair, one K of RAM. Um, uh, This thing still works, but I can't do anything with it, and it's not because the developers are evil. It's just that our expectations and demands change, uh, and and so and that the technology doesn't doesn't stand still. And so part, you know, one of the things just to look at those two issues is there's nothing that prevents a liberal arts graduate complaining about planned obsolescence to go off and invent a battery that lasts a billion charge cycles. Go off and do it. I mean, nothing is going to stop you doing it. Um, and the second is that um, it's really hard to to, to to say to people, you should freeze your, your technology mm-hmm. at a certain point and say that to an ecosystem of free individuals and companies that have rights to just behave in particular ways. Um, and, you know, when you, you think about the people who sometimes say that um, and you look at them and you say to them, have you ever discovered a shortcut on your way to work? Do you take that shortcut? Well, you've just gone off and done learning, yeah, right? Um, and so it's this inherently human thing. So I, I I changed my view. And that's not to say like Silicon Valley libertarian style, there should be no regulation, everything should just do what it does. and you know let's get better for it it's to say that actually there needs to be this really really sensible dialogue and that actually involves to be honest both sides um are leveling up but the institutional side which actually has the force of the state behind it needs to level up faster Mm -hmm. to have better conversations now it's not helped when you have really ideological uh politically skewed people often running these companies who've read a a couple of Uh, Cliff's notes on Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman, um, uh, uh, you know, and and are willing to sort of opine thereafter. Um, And even those who've read a lot of it and are experts and scholars in their own right, um, for them not to recognise that it's kind of an ideology which has to compete with others and we should actually have that dialogue, I think is unhelpful. So, you know, my sense now is, you're either going to be a maker or a taker in this space. Mm-hmm. If you want to be a maker, then you need to level up in both directions. Um, and and but my emphasis started to change when I started to realize that actually it's it's really as much about you know regulators and business leaders and ordinary folk outside of the tech industry to start to understand how products come to be, how learning happens, how these second and third order effects um, happen. But it's a really really difficult. Uh, issue for which you know i don't have any any easy answer
1: yeah well in that sense as we kind of come to end of our time here i just want to get the future oriented perspective from you are you optimistic about the direction we're going are you pessimistic how do you things are how do you think things are playing out in terms of assuaging or reconciling this this chasm or this divide that's forming between the technology and society do you feel like we might be able to actually close the gap or do you just see an ever widening future?
0: Um, you, you know, I think it's it's a really, uh, it's a complex pattern which um, plays out uh, differently in different parts of the world. You know, so India, for example, has had this really worrying turn uh, away from democracy and, and towards a sort of real thuggish, uh, uh, racially motivated, you know, populism and, and yet, their smartphones are getting more and more powerful, um, so I am I am optimistic about uh, the fact that the technologies will continue to uh, deliver capabilities that we can apply wisely or less wisely, mm. uh, and you know certainly the ability to have clean um non-carbon energy is just an incredible uh uh bonus and um, but we will have some institutional choices about the way in which we want these um these things to to sort of manifest uh themselves and that's really about about power uh and power being the ability to get people to do things they don't know they want to do or mm. to, or don't want to do explicitly um and and that is, is where I think the politics starts to, to, to play a role. So a large part of the Web3 movement is this idea that there should be new gatekeepers to digital platforms. It shouldn't just be, uh, you know, a handful of very large companies. It should be a lot of pseudo-user-owned services, but in reality, they just have their own internal power structure. And, that you know, that's a discussion. There's a discussion about what should be provided as a public good or a commons um, versus things that are provided purely for for, for profit. Mm-hmm. So in other words, should there be many, many other things that look like Wikipedia um, or should everything look like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but for, you know, Facebook or the old yeah. old a- CompuServe where you were charged by the minute. Um, and I think that those, those are really, really important questions of choice that talk to how we, um, how we then close the the exponential gap, and and I think it's really really hard to um, it's really hard to know because it's a very very complex uh, um. environment. So so you know for all of the all of the the sort of angst that that, that the right feels about government involvement in um, the economy or in the world at all the right wing, both in the US and in the UK, has embraced government intervention in the supply of critical minerals for exponential technologies like molybdenum and rare earths and uh, cobalt and so on, right? Because they've realized that the market on its own is not going to deliver that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is also this sense that, that actually there is a bit of a consensus, even if people's ideas don't you know stand, uh, necessarily agree with them around things that must be done and I, and I i think it's important to start with points of um you know points of agreement as we as we move forward um I, i'm not a politics person so i don't have to get into that messy um you know messy fight but but you know the technology creates opportunities and and i hope that partly through generational shift partly through books like mine you know, more people have the tools to ask the right questions or you know, shape things in in ways that are more broadly beneficial.
1: Yeah, I'll always support uh, using wisdom as the guiding focus mm. through through life. Uh, Azeem, uh, we're coming up on time, so I, I want to respect yours, but I want to give you a chance to kind of uh, lay out any any uh, stuff that you'd like to talk about, anything you'd like to let people know that you're working on. I believe the book comes out in paperback in March of, of next year. Um, any, in, in paperback anything. in
0: march in the u.s uh in and US. out in paperback uh in other parts of the world uh now i mean i think i think finishing thoughts really are that we're on the second half of that curve mm. we're all we're past that in, in you know inflection point now um and we went through that uh in that period by, I think, I think sort of 2013 to 2017 sort of period, but we're really, really distinctly, distinctly past it. And, and actually a lot of the choices that we have as individuals are, um, are really now live in that space because, you know, you can go off and, and buy an electric vehicle now. Right. You can go off and do it. There's no question. It's not going to be the, the platform of the future. Um, and so I would just sort of encourage people to it's a chance to go back and revisit your priors, because um, as you know, exponential processes go, uh, they, they start off very, very boring. And as you know, the, 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 the king uh, learnt on the chessboard, there's a turning point where suddenly things get out of control. And I think we're, we're about there now.
1: Fair enough, man. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, Azim, and uh, thank you for all your wisdom.
0: Thanks so much. Cheers.